You're listening to the Meet the Farmers podcast with me, your host, Ben Eagle. Please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you are listening. Hello everyone, I'm Ben Eagle and welcome to this second episode in this latest mini-series about trees on farms, which is being produced in association with Forestry Commission. Now last time, and if you haven't listened to episode one, please go back and listen to that, um, we were talking about the why of woodland management on farms. Uh, This time we're throwing the floor open to your questions about farm woodland management and about trees generally, um, I suppose, in the countryside and on farms. Um, And today I'm hosting alone um, as I'm putting the questions to my usual Forestry Commission co-host, John Burgess. He's on the panel. John is a Woodland Resilience Officer at the FC. I'm also joined by Simon James, who is Woodland Management and Policy Senior Manager at the Small Woods Association. And James Ramsgate-Gardner, who is the National Agroforestry Advisor at the Forestry Commission. Welcome, everyone. How are you doing? I mean, I wonder if you can start uh, by just giving us a little bit more of an introduction to what you do. James, do you want to start with you? Uh, Yeah, thank you very much. Um, So uh, I've got kind of two halves to my job, really. Uh, One half is I'm working with uh, DEFRA uh, and other stakeholders, to help develop the grant schemes and regulations for agroforestry in England. Uh, and the other half of my job is effectively to upskill and support both the forestry and farming sectors to do agroforestry. Brilliant. Simon? Uh, hello, everyone. Yeah, I work for Smallwoods uh, Association, which is a, a charity, UK-wide charity. We have a, a membership, about 2,500 members. Um, mainly woodland owners, but we also have managers, workers, enthusiasts um, and supporters of our charity and the work that we do. So we look at helping small woodlands thrive. So this is through woodland management, through training and also support as in uh, woodland management plans and also woodland management work. So I look after the woodland management side. Also have a presence in Wales, which is known as uh, Coetleo, and they do a lot of social forestry work. Fantastic. And I mean, John, anyone who's listened to either the last episode or indeed the first series will know you well by now. But can you just uh, let us know about what you do as well? Yeah, thanks, Ben. Just in a nutshell, uh, Woodland Resilience Officer, so I help people design woodlands that are fit for the future. So that's new woodland creation schemes or, or how to manage their woodlands in the face of climate change. Great. Well, um, I, for one, am definitely looking forward to this panel session today. We've got uh, a number of different questions from uh, many from farmers, um, uh, different parts of the UK, actually. So the Forest Forestry Commission is focused on England, um, but we have some questions which are broader as well. And our first question is from Rachel Maidley-Davis. How does the panel think that we can reset the food production versus tree debate? How does the panel think we can reset the debate here? John, can we start with you on that? Yeah, I mean, that is is a kind of classic question. We've ended up in a country where people are either farmers or they're foresters. And we just need to blur those boundaries. And hopefully James will talk about 
agroforestry and 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 that's one of the the best blurs that we have at the moment but just to to recap in case anyone's missed it that we are 60 to 70 percent food secure in this country but we're only 20 percent timber secure so we import 80 percent of our timber so it's just the sort of the highest the highest bidder wins in in some ways so the most economic land use will be the one that the land manager chooses and that produces kind of suboptimal outcomes for for nature maybe for downstream flooding maybe for other things and if we just accept that trees have a place with on farms or that just there's a more wooded landscape as a whole because we have very very little tree cover so i talk in terms of increasing the tree cover rather than increasing the the amount of of, of farmland and, and removing forests we can we can start to get the benefits of those trees on the farm we can start to get those benefits of the trees off farm i think we just do that by by having more integrated decision making and, and not be so beholden to the money aspect of it if we have that more diverse landscape it will also be more resilient okay james obviously agroforestry begins to blur these sorts of boundaries i suppose integrating both within the landscape uh, your thoughts on this absolutely uh well that is why I, i'm passionate and work in agroforestry is that i i believe it is what ne- what is needed you know you, you John summed it up perfectly there. You know, we're a, we're a small island with 70 million people on it. We need to utilize our land really efficiently to create both food and timber. Um, I agree with pretty much everything John, John has uh, just spoken about there. Uh, the thing I would add is where I, I got a lot of aspirations for agroforestry is the what it can bring to the rural economy and uh, kind of culture. We're looking at a landscape where more and more people are leaving it rather than joining it. And by opening up uh, this kind of avenue of trees on farms, bringing in other people to work on the farm alongside the farmer to help manage and maintain those trees, you're bringing more people to working in the countryside, increasing the populations of some of our really rural habitats. That for me is a really exciting kind of aspect for it. How we reset the debate it's, it's a i guess it's a mindset a mindset shift i'm still working on how we do that uh, <laughs> but um <laughs> it's it's definitely something uh that that needs to happen and I, I think it's it's picking up a pace like interest is really really growing where we can do both agricultural and forestry work on the same land rather than either or and, and simon i mean farmers obviously clearly see themselves first and foremost as, as food producers you do as, as a farmer but increasingly uh, farmers are expected to um, undertake lots of other practices and, and and especially with the environmental hat on as well where do trees sit within this and, and do do we need to reset this debate is this a mindset thing um as, as james is alluding to there I, th- I think the word reset is possibly the most important bit there because it's suggesting that whatever we're doing at the minute isn't working um and so for me we talk a lot about food security, um, but maybe we should be thinking maybe climate security, so securing ourselves against the harshest climatic events. So I think that trees will play a big role in um, that net zero society that we're aiming for. So when I think about maybe resetting, I think we do need 
to get those land managers um, together and to actually consider kind of the best use for land. And that's where hopefully they can strike that balance that we need to feed the nation. You know, it sounds a bit Chilean, but, um, you know, feed the nation and secure a climate that we can successfully grow the food in. But I also think that we need to talk about what it means to individuals, so individual farmers, um, because governments um, talk about um, thousands of hectares, but we really need to distill that and and talk about what that really means. So let's say Wales is 2 million hectares. We're only looking to plant 2% of the land in Wales. So, you know, is that really going to drastically harm food security? You know, I don't think it will. We just need to kind of rehash the things that we've been saying to make it understandable and, and allow people to buy into it. Looking through my list of questions, there's actually another one which sort of links to this. Um, what are the Forestry Commission doing to make planting trees more attractive to farmers? Um, so this is sort of why, almost a why should question. And this the question goes on to say, for example, there are dairy farmers in the Black Forest of Germany who plant trees to benefit livestock. So how does the Forestry Commission plan to bridge the gap between farming and forestry? As this is an FC-directed question, um, Bjorn, I'm going to go straight over to you. I find that a really sort of slightly tricky question because it it's more sort of bouncing it back to, to the farmers. Like, to make a tree more attractive, I, I can give a whole list of reasons as to why a farmer may want to benefit or may benefit from having that tree on the farm. I won't start listing them here. Go back to the first mini series we did where we covered that yep. in, in great detail. Um, so it, it comes down to perhaps more of a, of a just a sort of a mindset thing and, and to what is the blocker to accepting trees onto the farm? We can show plenty of evidence where having some trees will increase farm productivity. And I, you know, perhaps the others have figures to back that up um, or to diversify the farm income. So you start to take um, a harvest of firewood. You start to take the, the, the crop of the, of the fruits and nuts, as well as just thinking of it as a timber crop. So it's not losing productivity. So yeah it's like what is the block is it economic well then plant a crop that will be economic is it actually what most of the research comes down to that it's a cultural thing it's just it's just that that silos i referred to in the last answer between being a farmer or being a forester it, you can't be both in 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 some people's mindset so yeah i i said i found that a very tricky question to answer but it's for whatever the particular reason is it's great. We can have a conversation and try to find a way through to to find a place for those trees on that farm's landscape. Mm. James, you speak to a lot of farmers, and in many ways, your entire role really is bridging the gap between farming and forestry. So, I mean, just leading on from from John's point there, I suppose, questioning what are the blockers um, in in farmers' minds. But I mean, what what's what are your thoughts on this on on bridging that gap? For a big part of it, it's a cultural identity issue. You know, as John said, farmers want to farm. And uh, a lot of farming practices we've carried out for the last hundred years have uh, very much not included trees. If anything, they have removed. Uh, they've been the cause of removing a lot of trees and hedgerows in our landscape. 
it's reverting almost it's reverting back to some farming practices and ideologies we had before the second world war you know where every farm had its own farm woodland which was managed and maintained as part of the farm unit to provide uh, timber resources for the farm a way i think we can approach it now a um, hundred years later is by not necessarily expecting the farmer to be a forester you know i i there is no one who would support them more to be a forester than me if, if a farmer was interested but I, I don't believe they need to be where i think some work maybe need to be done is around having multiple people working and managing a farm but just different aspects of it you know i work an awful lot with small organized kind of grassroots organizations around the country who have got plenty of people who are really really interested in working in woodlands and on farms dotted around the country I think if a farmer can find their, their friendly neighbourhood woodworker or woodsman or woodswoman uh, to, to come and help support them and to, to manage the tree component on their farm, I think that could be a really productive relationship. Simon was talking about the Welsh situation in his first answer. So we are going to head on to our next question. Hello, my name is James Powell. I'm a sheep, beef, pig and tourism farmer from Llandrindrod Wells in Mid Wales. And my question is, does the panel know just how many trees we would need to plant the Welsh Government's aspiration for 43,000 hectares of trees by 2030 and 180,000 hectares by 2050? Where will we get all these trees from? And can they possibly be all native? Or does that not matter? And that's also a lot of plastic guards to break up and clog the countryside watercourses. Simon. Well, I, I suppose the initial answer is looking at number of, well, number of stems per hectare that you could calculate exactly how many or roughly how many trees you'd need. So 43,000. Uh, hectares would probably equate to something around 48 million to um, 68 million trees, which is a lot of trees. But there are <laughs> there are nurseries out there, and you know figures show that um, there are say 150 million trees being produced a year, roughly. In terms of tree supply, it's there. It's also um, scalable. A lot of the nursery operations are scalable. Uh, they would just need to utilise more land, but there is a potential of scalability. And to declare a, a pecuniary interest, as, as this is a Forestry Commission um, podcast, I, at, at Smallwoods, uh, we're in receipt of the Tree Production Capital Grant, which is a fantastic grant um, to help establish nurseries or to um, you know, upgrade and evolve um, existing um, nurseries so we are not one of the big boys but we're certainly looking to develop a community tree nursery community as in we are hoping to bring in people that are disadvantaged and um, you know possibly have well-being issues and things like that to help us um, plant the trees to sow the seeds and um, uh, propagate um, and we're looking at in the initial year at producing about 10,000 trees and then that will be scaled up to hopefully about 32,000 
thousand trees per year um, going forward. So we're really looking forward to getting this off the ground and um, you know contributing to those vast numbers of trees required. Hey, John, I'm going to go to you on this next. Uh, I mean, perhaps you can reflect on the native non-native part of that question but also the question more broadly we, we've of course I mean even in the last episode actually as well we, we were addressing that there's some scarily large numbers there so the 2050 figure i just sort of ran, you know you're talking 300 million trees wow. just to put that into context a mature birch tree produces about a million seeds a year so it's not for nature it is not a challenge at all. What we need to do is, if we're going to, to, to use natural regeneration as alongside the nursery stock, absolutely, Simon talked very eloquently about increasing our other nursery sector. But if we were to, to, to use some natural regeneration to help support those tree uh, woodland creation targets, yeah, nature's, nature's our best friend in this, but we have to control the grazing. And that's what the plastic tree tubes uh, do very effectively. But we don't need to use plastic tree tubes. We can use fencing. Um, and that is possibly where we should be looking when we're talking about that kind of scale of woodland creation. Tree tubes are great for sort of little copses of 50 trees. But once you get above about a hectare, then it becomes more economic to, to put in a fence. That removes that question about the plastic and the carbon emissions from the plastic and the degradation of the of the plastic going into the watercourses so I'd, I'd steer people that way but then you asked me about the native my job is to get people to think about trees that are suited to the future now that means you have to understand what the climate is going to do on your site are you on the top of a hill are you going to increase the wind speeds are you on a droughty soil what is going to be the impact of climate change on your site native trees might be fine they might be great today and great tomorrow, but if you are going to experience large degrees of climate change, and that will be across the UK, you know, the southeast is going to get a lot drier, the southwest is going to get a lot wetter in the winter, the wind speeds, the storm events are going to pick up. So you know, there's a lot of things there that people do need to just plan for. And on some of those sites, native species won't be able to perform terribly well. So where we've lost ash through ash dieback on the limestone, there isn't really a good native tree that will be kind of economically productive. So if you're farming those soils and want to put in trees, then you might need to think if you want shade for your animals, for example, you might go for pine. I would say that a you know native uh, part is absolutely essential for the wildlife, but we should look slightly wider. Let's turn to a management question. I've got one from Ian Farrant, who farms beef and hazelnuts um, on 600 acres on the Herefordshire Worcestershire border. Uh, and James, I think I'm going to turn to you on this first. The question is, uh, we clearly need to plant more trees to reduce our impact on the climate. But ironically, the longer periods of extreme weather makes establishing trees more difficult. How should we manage young trees in a dry summer and is it prudent to spend the additional money on an irrigation system? Uh, my first uh, point would be you want to plant your tree as young as possible. Uh, that will give it the best uh, the best start in life, should we say, to, to help uh, navigate some of these uh, uh, some of these tough weather conditions they're going to face. For irrigation wise, where I think 
the balance needs to be made is the the cost of establishing the tree versus the cost of uh, an irrigation system going in. So if you're planting young timber tree saplings that are relatively cheap, it might not stack up. Whereas if you're planting kind of more expensive orchard tree species, that might be the time where it, there is a, a cost benefit there to, to putting an irrigation system in. Simon, thoughts on managing trees um, in a dry summer? Irrigation might be feasible for smaller sites. There is such a thing as a water abstraction license, so you just need to be careful with things like that. But I'm sure farmers um, are more than aware of those kind of things. And also, when I was thinking about the question, I was thinking that some farmers do have irrigation systems already so potentially the cost could be quite low in terms of setting something up in my experience we've never really used a irrigation system um i um once planted a, an extension to Wombwell wood up in um, south yorkshire and um the soil there um opened up like a like a zip it was um synthetically made if you like ameliorated um the soil the problem I had there was that the soil didn't actually act like normal soil. It wanted to, uh, once it was cut open, it wanted to stay open and it dried very quickly. So I think my advice is to actually understand your soil and you'll know it best if, you, if you're, if you know, been farming the land, you'll know exactly what its characteristics are. And that then would possibly help you decide whether you want to go bare root or cell grown. That will provide the tree, as, as James was saying, with the best opportunity. Um, you know, the roots, when planting, are the most important part, and you really do need to care for them. Don't let them dry. Don't damage them. Uh, making sure that your tree is, um, or the roots are, completely under the ground. And if you do open the ground to do your notch cut, or your, even if you're ploughing in the the trees, make sure that ground is properly firmly sealed behind it, and that will give it um, the best chance to stay in a moist environment. John, any tips from you? Absolutely, I could go on for a very long time with this <laughs> question. I'm trying to keep it very succinct, though get your species right uh building on what simon's saying understand your soil that's absolutely critical understand that you know the sort of the climate you're in and then get the species right so it might mean in a productive agroforestry system you're not using apple trees as the interrows but you're going to pick something that is much more drought tolerant like walnut you might choose to irrigate for the first year or two but what you're actually doing is replace, is putting moisture into the soil. Well, you could think it's a slightly different way around in stopping that moisture leaving the soil. So just put down a really good mulch. So when it does rain, that soil, that, that moisture gets into the soil and it's not being pulled out by direct sun hitting the soil or it's not being pulled out by the weed competition. And I think we often underestimate just how, uh, how effective a sort of a grass sward can be in competition to trees. If we control those weeds for the first couple of years, allow trees to get their roots deep down into the soil, they will tap into moisture that you know you don't need to replace. So good species choice, get, your, get that right in the first instance, and then weed control, mulch, or, or just yeah, um, some you know, chemical or mechanical weed control to, to stop that moisture that is in the soil leaving them let the trees get in for one year or two and then after that 
I don't think we should be irrigating uh, trees in the UK for more than the first couple of years, if we do it at all. Brilliant. Uh, next up, we have an agroforestry question from Stephen Ware. Hello, this is Stephen Ware from North Herefordshire, and I have a question in relation to agroforestry. Uh, we've been told to plant more trees, and there has been promise of assistance, both financial and with training, for well over two years, um, but nothing has been forthcoming. Uh, my question is, is this, in your belief, a hollow gesture from DEFRA, and do they appreciate the timescale involved with planting, ordering, and growing trees? Artisting one there. James, I'm going to go straight, straight over to you on that one. Lovely, thank you. Um, <laughs> I, I'm slightly limited with some of the information I can give because uh, it is DEFRA's to, to announce, not, not myself. The Forestry Commission, we're working to create uh, and support Lantra accredited training courses for, for farmers and foresters to create, manage and maintain agroforestry systems. And we're also uh, starting to hire agroforestry specific or specialised staff within the Commission to work alongside myself to help support farmers with advice, design and management, um, as well as providing uh, links to the, the already really great organisations out there, such as the Soil Association, who are doing some really great uh, work with agroforestry. But the timescales, DEFRA absolutely uh, appreciates um, the, the timescales of trees. As we've already spoken about, we, um, we have quite a, a healthy tree nursery set up in the country. Um, so I, I feel fairly confident that we, we have the levels of trees required for the agroforestry schemes, especially when you consider an awful lot of the schemes are going to be planting trees at a much lower density compared to uh, woodland creation. So we will need less trees for the outcome compared to, to woodland on that same area of land so that the trees we're growing currently in our nurseries will go a, a lot further. Just running on the, with funding with this, obviously provision of trees is one thing. I suppose labour and, and time is another. I've got another question here, which is how does the Forestry Commission plan to upskill farmers um, to make woodland management a viability? John? Well, I'd I hope Simon will come in on this on the back of my answer and I'll, I'll, I'll open the door for him. But it's it starts with wanting to know more about forestry. So, we, you know, you, you can take a horse to water uh, in the old saying. So so once we want to learn about forestry, there are so many good uh, foresters out there to learn from and they share their knowledge quite freely in groups like the Small Woods Association. So that is 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 where I'll, I'll sort of open the door. Simon, did you want to come in there? I'll maybe sort of jump back on the end of that afterwards. But yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, as like John says, you know, Small Woods um, Association were very much looking to upskill people that want to be upskilled, uh, providing training. Um, we have a very good course, Sustainable Woodland Management, which kind of gives you all of the tools and directs you to all the places that you, you need to go to kind of start managing your, your woodland sustainably. We're also working closely with Woodland Trust and Sussex Wildlife Trust with regards to Lost Woods in um, the Low Weald and Downs area, where we are um, specifically targeting that area and looking for those small woodlands and actually hopefully won't come to this but literally kind of knocking on doors and asking them 
please will you take this training so you can uh, learn how to manage your woodlands we found that there's lots of neglected and undermanaged woodlands in that area and we really would like to see that change uh, we've also got other projects um, like Network for Resilience, projects in the southwest and the east of England, where we are looking to target those that are, um, let's say, disengaged. They just aren't aware that, you know, these things are, are going on. Uh, we're offering training, we're offering advice and we're offering support. And I think in my travels and the people I speak to, I think farmers take a lot of pride in what they do on their land. And I think training is the key. Um, they need to be told how to do things properly before I think they they have the confidence to go out and do it. And I think we see that at, um, you know, ploughing matches and even, you know, um, like Clarkson's Farm when Caleb was teasing Jeremy about his sewing lines being all wobbly and things like that. Farmers really take a pride in in what their land looks like and um, how they yes. use it. So they really do uh, or they really would benefit from, from that kind of training. Um, and at the end of it, they don't want to waste money. Uh, they want to know how to do something and do it correctly. Um, so, yeah, talking to others, talking to foresters, talking to um, agents and you know managers is really key. Something I'm quite keen on, on doing is profiling. So looking at individuals within a demographic and seeing how their training journey might look. Um, and so we're not you know maybe a farmer we're not looking to get them um, a certificate they don't want a certificate they just want to know the, um, the skills and knowledge that they need to do what they're doing and so you know sending them off on a accredited course just isn't the right thing it would be better to take them out for a day planting with some planters and and they see firsthand exactly how to do a notch cut in the soil and getting those those roots in um, correctly could I just sort of pick up on a little bit more on that um, Simon's answer there? I'd, I'd say there's sort of two things. One is that that whole sort of part of managing a forest and being a forager and, and production planning and, and large scale. That's probably not what farmers need. The small scale, the sort of the, the actual getting a chainsaw, getting a, a small timber trailer, which you can get funding for, and and just Going on a chainsaw training course, if you haven't, because they are dangerous pieces of equipment, that is one certified course I really would encourage farmers to go on. But that that initial sort of like just doing a little bit of firewood thinning, just taking out your needs out of your woodland to feed the farmhouse, that isn't that complex. You can speak to your uh, local forestry commission woodland officer, make sure you've got a felling license. We will help you make sure that that complies with UK forest standard. And then it's just sort of like, okay, yeah, just just fell a few trees, harvest a bit of timber, process a little bit of firewood, start small and build the confidence and just learn kind of by doing and then sort of seek, you know, when you realise you have a question, then come and ask, you know, sort of the colleagues, the you know, other people in the landscape around you, you have the, the facilitation fund grouping in quite a lot of places and, and just use that network of people and get them to run a woodland event and encourage them to sort of start having that conversation. And then, yeah, and then there is help out there when you need to answer this question. So yeah, just just start small and, and, and just learn by doing, but yeah, chainsaw training course, if you are going to take one piece of training. <laughs> Let's turn to the uh, the money side. Um, affordability. We've got a question uh, from Sam 
Kenyan who farms sheep and goats in North Wales. Um, as a farmer who struggles to find skilled local and level affordable labour, uh, what plans do the FC have to make small woodland management economically viable? Well, I suppose we can broaden that question out actually generally. Um, so what do we make small woodland management economically viable? Um, so I'm going to go straight back to you, actually. Yeah, okay. So um, upskilling yourself and or your, your farm workers um, would be a really good start. I've advised people to contact um, local firewood merchants. They're always looking for new supply and they may know contractors that um, could help with um, woodland management. And as John was saying before, you know, start small and, you know, you can build it up and build it up. Also, you know, network. Um, there's going to be other people in your situation um, and just talk to them and find out what they're doing. We do a course called Sustainable Woodland Management, and that is a really good opportunity to kind of get to know what you have in your woodland and the potential that your woodland um, might have. So you might not have thought about it, but potentially um, starting coppice cycles, you know, firewood, um, or even branching out into things like biochar. And also, if you did branch out into coppice cycles, I note that you're a goat farmer. Goats love hazelnuts. And, um, you know, that could be a good way to kind of supplement their feed. James, coming going to come over to you. And, uh, and again, maybe not just talking about small woodlands here, but uh, maybe trees in a broader context as well. I really feel an answer because we do have a, a local skilled labour kind of issue in forestry. We, we don't have enough qualified foresters uh both uh, at management and kind of work actually working in the forest level so i feel a way of kind of economically managing uh farm woodlands is actually to operate in a, a farming cluster and instead of trying to just look after and manage your own individual woodland you team together and work with your neighboring farmers who will all have their own small bits of woodland and you start to operate and manage your woodland as a collective whole you know, maybe in the valley uh, or wherever you're based to get, you know, to get to the point of where you've got an economy of scale. So you can get a contractor in every few years to do thinning, to do works like that. And you'll, you'll, it'll be a more attractive job for a contractor to come in and do, and you'll get a better return by sharing the cost uh, amongst several farms rather than each individually trying to do the work yourself. John, finally, some thoughts from you on, on the general economic viability of small woodland management. The question does seem to be in two parts. One is the sort of the labour supply to get the people to do the work. And, and um, my thoughts with that is like if you have a more mixed farm, traditionally, the sort of the, the woodland work was a winter job, whereas summer job would require more hands on on the actuals on sort of the food production. So. I mean, it could be a way that we just look to kind of recreate that, that, you know, you could have someone uh, coppicing uh, and, and, and thinning a woodland during the winter and then using that product as a fencing contractor during the summer when it's when you can get on the land and, and, and put the fence in and just sort of, the, you know, recreate that kind of, of, of cycle in the, in the seasons. Um, where we work the winters outside of bird nesting season. So it'd be sort of better for, for the biodiversity. The second side of the question is about the economically viable. And James touched on this sort of the economies of scale of a, of a large scale because the forestry machinery 
just dwarfs farm scale machinery. You know, the, the, the timber harvesting is a, is a huge, expensive machine that can just drive up the side of a mountain. But the, the smaller scale, the, the, the skills should be there within the farm. That kind of small scale timber harvesting is not, it's not a million miles away from, from the, the skills that the, the working that people have. So a small amount of training can help bring a forest into an economic cycle and just you know, firewood is a valuable material, but it's that rather than just selling a lump of wood, if you cut it and chop it, then, and you can sell it as a finished product, it's that value-adding cycle. And again, I'm reminding, we talked about that. We had a really good um, episode in the first season about that sort of added value, even just selling some Christmas trees. It's, you know, the tree just grows four or five years and you're selling it for far more than the weight of the timber. So it's just sort of getting a little bit more familiar with the economic uh, outcome, uh, the, the, the you know, potential products that uh, that forests can give. I've got a few questions about ash dieback, which I'm going to bring together. You can just sort of make your thoughts on these. So questions about ash dieback. Um, are there grants to restock woodlands when they're dying? Um, can I fell dying trees? Um, should I fell all trees dying of ash dieback? And what are the species to use to replace them? So some questions on felling there. Uh, whether there are any grants available and what species to use. John, let's go straight back to you. Uh, first of all, um, think felling license. If you're felling trees, you, if they're not fully dead, you should just make sure that you have a felling license if you need one. Speak to your Woodland Officer Forestry Commission uh, to go through that. Should I fell them all? Well, fell the dangerous ones, the ones that are over roads, the ones that are over houses. But only then if they're leaning actually over it. If they're leaning back into the woods, then you maybe don't need to film because they're not, if they're not going to hit something, they're not actually dangerous. So we are strongly encouraging people to leave trees that are showing signs of disease because the trees can bounce back. And it's only by seeing trees affected by ash dieback and then sort of reflushing and, and becoming it will know that that tree has some inherent genetic resilience and they're the trees we want to breed from to 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 enhance the 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 ash back in the landscape by breeding in, in the resilience so should i fell them all no try not to if it's okay to leave them um best species to replant with well that depends what soil you're on what site you're on come and speak to the Forest Commission, we can advise you that. We have online tools that can help. Um, just you put a dot on the map and it tells you what your 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 climate and your wind speed and your rainfall are, and it models what will be good species to replace them. It's very different if you're on limestone to if you're in the bottom of a, of a fertile one. And grants to restock, we do uh, offer um, restock grants and they're different in certain parts of the country. So. Again, I've just probably the easiest answer here is to say contact your local woodland officer, go on to um, Forest Commission pages on gov.uk and just have a look and see what, what is available. But there are there is some financial support, support for the restocking. And just quickly from you, Simon, any thoughts on managing ash dieback trees? It's very much a hot topic um, and it does really worry our woodland owners. You know, ash makes up such a high percentage of, of a lot of um, woodland species. Um, and so getting ash dieback is, you know, 
quite devastating for some. You know, we do need to make sure health and safety comes first. Um, you know, John's already mentioned that. Um, we also need to make people aware that, you know, felling trees with um, ash dive back is a dangerous game and it's not not for everyone. You know, you do need to be aware that, um, you know, trees can shed limbs when felling uh, if they are really dead. Um, so just, you know, do everything you can to be as safe as possible. Um, and if the skills aren't there, then make sure you bring somebody in to kind of deal with them. I think it's important to highlight that the trees, even though they are declining, they still hold a huge amount of biodiversity value. And so, yeah, preempting felling is very detrimental, I think, to the long-term survival of, of ash trees. You know, we could see genetic resilience um, and, you know, we, we, we hopefully will start seeing tolerant trees in, in the landscape. I quite, I, whenever I talk to um, you know, small woodland owners and go out to site, I always have to mind the tree council guidance, which is looking at um, classes one to four. And this is to do with canopy decline. Um, and that I think is a really simple, you know, everyone can kind of estimate roughly the percentage of a canopy. So that's a really good way of um, quickly identifying trees that need immediate um, um, action. And yeah, I'd encourage um, your listeners to have a look at that tree council guidance on, on um, tree safety. If I could add a, another really great bit of guidance out there, uh, recently the organisation LEAF, uh, Linking Environment to Farming, uh, released uh, a document they've been working with in conjunction with Forest Research, which is a really, really accessible guidance document for managing ash dieback on farms. Fantastic. We'll put that, a link to that in the show notes, along with um, any other links that we mentioned today. Um, I'm going to pick one more question that is on coppicing. Is coppicing a beneficial woodland management practice? And how old do the trees need to be to start coppicing? Does this depend on species, Simon? Well, the answer to that question is absolutely. Coppice does make a really good addition to your woodland. So you can start coppicing hazel. I'm going to pick on hazel for this example. But hazel, you could start cutting that um, to try and get it to coppice at, 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 any, st at any stage. Um, we usually cut... Um, coppice between years five and ten if, if you've got many stems on a stool um you'd be looking to go in and start a cycle every five or ten years basically so it's a bit like um growing in your allotment or, or your vegetable patch you don't want to have all of your stools at a mature age all at once because you want to make sure that you've got product for every year Making sure that you kind of compartmentalise your your woodland when you're creating your cycle is really important. So you do have that kind of continuity of, of product coming out. So we usually look at um, harvesting when the um, base of the stem is around 7.5 centimetres in diameter. And that will then produce, let's say, a, a standard product from, from your stool. So you'd be looking at maybe 1,200 stools in a hectare. Um, and out of that, you could probably get about 25,000 rods. You could make 700 sheep hurdles, 15,000 pea sticks, 600 bean rods. Um, oh. And then you're left with um, things like thatching wood, stakes, etc. Yeah. That's great. There's some great practical stats there. I love that. Um, James, any any coppicing tips from you? 
Oh, I don't know about tips. I I must, uh, I must admit a, a vested interest in this. I came to forestry through coppicing. Um, oh, really? So I do. <laughs> uh, I do have a quite a soft spot for it in my heart. I agree with a hundred percent of everything uh, Simon's just spoken about there. The other thing I would I'd like to add, and it's maybe not something we've we've spoken about much yet, is the role of tree fodder and forage uh, on the farm. Uh, to support livestock farming. Coppicing can be a, a brilliant way of, uh, I'm going to pick on willow for my example, uh, as I view it as the, the superfood tree for, uh, for any livestock uh, agroforestry system. I've, uh, I've seen a few farms now across the country where willow, they, farmers have planted willow and they're pollarding it, similar, you know, kind of maybe on a, a two, three year cycle. Uh, and as Simon said, not cutting it all at once, you know, staggering it across the farm to provide additional feed source uh, for their livestock, um, whether they're uh, cutting the, the sticks uh, and just dropping them for, for livestock to feed on straight away, or they're storing them uh, in a, a shed for tree hay to, to feed them during the winter months. If I can continue the, the personal journey of forestry that James started there, he talked about coming in through coppice. I came into forestry through veteran trees, ancient trees, and actually, some of the trees we have in our landscape were pollarded, which is coppicing at height. So you, you cut off above where the animals graze, and then you have that regrowth, which you can use for the reason, you know, for all the things that have just been talked about. And it's that cyclical recutting of a tree that prolongs the life of them. We have more veteran trees in the UK than pretty much any other country in Europe because of the history of wood management, which when you think about sort of we're talking about agroforestries and you, can we support agroforestry and the development of agroforestry? It's like our ancient trees are here because we did agroforestry, because our ancestors did agroforestry, they did it so well. We've just lost those skills. So there is nothing, we're not reinventing, inventing where we're reinventing the wheel uh, or, or the cycle or the cyclical cutting off. Simon talked about hazel, but there are other species that coppice really, really well. So sweet chestnut to provide fencing stakes. It lasts a lot longer than treated softwood. And if we can get that kind of homegrown use that a farm cuts its own fencing material from its own little coppice, which is, you know, at the top of the hill on that less fertile land, because that's what the sweet chestnut would love. Sweet chestnut is a very drought tolerant tree that's fit for climate change. And it all just, all the pieces fall into place so is coppicing a beneficial woodland practice yes absolutely if i could maybe round off this uh well i could happily talk about for hours uh, the role of coppicing on farming but if i could round off this question with uh, a shameless plug for the the national coppice federation absolutely get in touch with your local coppicing group you can find them through the national coppice federation there are many coppice workers or aspiring coppice workers around the country that are desperate for uh, woodland to cut and manage. Again, I'll go back. If, if the farmer wants to, to cut and manage the, the woodland themselves, brilliant. We will support them the whole way. But for any farmer that isn't necessarily interested in taking on that, that management themselves, but would like to, to get the benefits of a, a, a managed woodland, they can absolutely, uh, there's plenty of uh, people out there who are willing to work with them to do so. Yeah, this is a really simple question, but it's good. we're just going to be bouncing back and forth for a long time now. Uh, I do just broaden it ever so slightly. We're talking about coppicing, but I really just need to say that generally woodland management 
is better for the woodland, better for, for, for the landscape, better for biodiversity, better for everything. A sustainably, sensitively managed woodland is much better than an unmanaged woodland for so, so, so many things. So, yeah, just copper thing is good, but woodland management is is also just fantastic. I think that's a great point to leave it on. Uh, that is all we have time for, sadly. Uh, but a massive thank you uh, to my panel, to our guests, Simon James, James Ramsgate Gardner, and John Burgess, who will be back as my co-host for the next episode. Thank you very much for listening. And please do share this episode amongst your farming network. We really are trying to get a conversation started about managing trees on farms, managing small woodlands on farms. Um, so you sharing it is a great way of doing that. That would be a great help. Um, until next time, I'm Ben Eagle. My co-host for this mini-series is John Burgess. And this has been a Meet the Farmers mini-series on trees on farms produced in association with the Forestry Commission. John and I will see you next time when we'll be looking at the how of woodland management through the practical example of creating and implementing a woodland management plan. Uh, so I hope you can join us then. Until then, have a great week.